we were just saying that uh, days like today, it seems like we work next to each other and then we don't see each other all day long. Yeah, some days you have a lot of stuff to get done and just don't talk to each other and day just flies by. And we were saying how nice the weather is. It's not bad. It's been really nice at night. Yeah, it's been nice. I mean, it's just kind of a standard, uh, you know, spring, early summer weather in Florida. I, I don't mind it. Most new Florida residents hate it. I think it's too hot. <laughs> but for all of you who are COVID uh, crazed, go ahead and stay inside. Don't get any sun and uh, make sure to hide under the blankets, right? Yeah, definitely don't get vitamin D because that's, you know, it's bad or something. Towards the end of the day, when I have been doing a lot of talking, my voice gets real rough. So if anybody hears my voice a little bit rough, it is what it is, what it is. So what do you say we get started? Um, S&P, let's talk a little bit about Standard & Poor's. Uh, Standard & Poor's is up a total of 15.6% on a year-ending basis or March 31st. In other words, on a 12-month basis, not a calendar basis. And the average monthly return has been 1.22%. I doubt that people are feeling very good about that. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. It's it's positive, at least. But it has fallen in the last uh, four of the last 12 months, so that's what... um, Anybody who suffers from recency, what have you done for me lately? That would be... Oh, yeah, the world's over because, you know, what is it? We have a total return loss of 5.2%. So, you know, chicken little spaghetti meatballs falling from the sky. The world's going to end. The performance of the last few months is the way it's going to be forever. So go to gold. You know, it's really... (laughs) Yeah, you got to go to gold. You know what's really lucky, though? It's really lucky that around 1920, somebody invented the wheel. And that was really an amazing feat. Yeah, never before then. We were talking earlier... no, this is so sarcastic. I don't care. Remember, we were talking, uh, you were bringing up in a conversation we had with somebody about the fact that if you uh, go off the coast of the Carolinas, I think we were talking about pirates and Blackbeard's ghosts and all that. Co- oh, yeah. Blackbeard's ghost, just Blackbeard. And uh, we were talking about where he was buried and they don't know and he was beheaded and it was a mass pit. But the bottom line is the uh, the, the United States was a little bigger a few years ago, uh, but it wasn't the United States. And what was it? Uh, I don't really know what you're talking about. The fact that the trees that are petrified oh, in the water off the coast. Blackbeard. That's 1700s. Well, but, but, but that's just, but that's when all this happened, right? I mean, oh. it didn't, didn't global uh, warming and the, the, the glaciers melt and, and no. no, it didn't happen. 12,800 years ago. Yes. The uh, landmass of the earth was quite a bit larger as the oceans were approximately 300 or so feet below where they currently are. So you had a lot of land, like Florida was approximately double the width, uh, Georgia, state of Georgia, off their coast, they had a lot more oceanfront property. Yes. You know, one of the things that always makes me smile a little bit is that how by <clears throat> all standards that were talked about back in, uh, like I said, the early 90s, late 80s, you know, Miami is supposed to be under three feet of water by now. Yeah, well, I mean, you can you can go and look at the water lines on uh, old structures out you know, on islands and things that are in the actual ocean, not just a pond or a lake or something. And you can see that the water level is the same and it's slightly different maybe depending on tide but you know it's insignificant in the grand scheme of things and you know is what it is well i guarantee for those of you who are going to hold title to land for the next twelve thousand years you're probably going to need to get a new survey with that let's get our disclaimer out of the way i'll be right back yeah this is the paul truesdell podcast Due to the extensive holdings of our sponsor, Fixed Cost Financial, and your hosts, you should expect that a conflict of interest exists with all companies discussed. And now, two Pauls in a pod. The Paul Truesdell Podcast. 
I'm not going to get into a lot of the details, but treasuries are an interesting item. A lot of people have invested in bonds thinking that inflation would forever be low, and it's not quite that way, is it? Well, I mean, if you're a borrower, it has been, and it probably still is a good time to take out a giant fat loan, especially if it's a business loan against business activities because, you know, low interest rates are there, and to be honest, they're going to go nowhere but up from the foreseeable future. Uh, inflation has outstripped bond rates, and that's the only real tool the Fed has to clean up inflation, which is increase the cost of borrowing and sh- shrink and or limit the increase in uh, inflation. Well, you know, on December 31st in 2020, the 10-year Treasury note was paying a whopping 0.91%. That's uh, yikes. Not uh, not a whole lot. That's a big drop from the, uh, the first part of the year when it was at uh, 1.91. Still giant re- rates of return. I forgot they dropped it in the middle of 2019. Yeah. But for those of you who are sitting in uh, any kind of a bond portfolio heavily into Treasuries, yeah, got a little bit clobbered there for a while. Oh, for sure. But it is still a, you know, it is, it, is a, it is an asset of last resort. And, you know, it's a guarantee on your money, at least. Very little fluctuation, I guess. Well, one thing I will say, the pandemic, uh, you know, or whatever you want to call this thing, um, we def- definitely had some more deaths than we had in uh, prior years. Now, the numbers have come out from uh, the uh, Centers for Disease Prevention and Control, blah, blah, blah. It's actually control and prevention. 3.45 nine million deaths in 2021 that's up from 3.82 million in 2020 and that's up from 8.55 million in 2019 so we're up about 604,000 but out of that you got to take into a lot of extra consideration like for example how many people did not go to the doctor who should have gotten doctors how uh, medical care how many people uh, how many of those are definitely older and rather than young We've got how many were in nursing homes when Cuomo shoved all the uh, COVID patients into nursing homes. We've got, I think, a lot of things that that needs to be broken down. There's no doubt you've got more people dying, but uh, you got any take on that? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the numbers, COVID accounts for a much larger percentage of deaths than I think are accurate. Um, You know, when you look at the raw numbers, when you look at, I would say, you know, a legitimate COVID death would be somebody with, you know, maybe one potentially two comorbidities depending on the circumstances and all of that but when you have somebody with two three four five comorbidities and covid kills them it's like i mean at what point does covid kill them or could have the could the average flu or cold have killed them putting all that stuff aside i would lar- I, I would like to look into the demographics and the details of those um of that number because my suspicion is can this next year it'll increase further and it'll increase further and it's going to be driven by a lot of factors it's going to be driven by the fact that we have a, uh, a large aging population that is dying in more significant numbers due to the fact that they're a large block of the population. Uh, the old, old baby boomers and the old, whatever you call people older than baby boomers, those people are starting to die off in larger numbers. Um, regardless of what they succumb to, it doesn't matter. I mean, they would have died anyways. Um, maybe if not this year, maybe the next. Um, but then you also have other factors like uh, overdose deaths, I know, were the highest that they've been in ever. I know Opioid 
opioids and uh, other related substances uh, attribute to at least 100,000 in 2021. Um, I know alcoholism is way up and things like that, quote unquote, deaths of despair. Those are way up. A lot of suicides. Um, Considering we're only working with a couple hundred thousand people here. Granted, I know that's a lot, but we're working on statistical numbers and, and percentages that have to do with literally hundreds of millions of people. So yes, we all know one one death is a tragedy, but we're we're, we're looking at we're looking at it from the Stalin perspective of <laughs> these are statistics, and you know that's how you have to govern. And unfortunately, you know, it just doesn't seem like COVID had the double whammy like everybody thought it would. I mean, it, I thought it would be way worse. To be totally honest, I figured we'd have like a million, maybe two million attributable deaths to COVID, and we just aren't seeing it. So, and that hasn't been for a lack of uh, issues in the medical supply chain and all that stuff. So, you know, it's a it's a big take a big loss on uh, predictions there, at least yeah, from we my did. perspective. Well, I, you know, I, I think it's important because anyone that listens to this, it goes, oh, they're anti-vaxxers um, or they're anti-COVID people or whatever. When this thing hit, uh, one of the things I always like to say is that my mother and father were born in 1915 and went through the pandemic, the swine flu back in the day, and uh, the Spanish flu. So the bottom line is, uh, I really did think that we were going to have a, a 100-year cycle on this. And I have no problem saying we went, I think, way overboard on this with masks. We got N95s. We got everything, didn't we? I mean, we got gloves. We got every kind of spray. If they said alcohol, if they said Clorox, I mean, whatever we could do. I mean, we really did it right. Yeah, in early January, we prepared for this the way everybody says you're supposed to prepare for it now. And, you know, six, eight months into it, it became very obvious that this is not the deadly disease that everybody says it's going to be. And it doesn't affect the entire population either. It affects a certain subset of the population that, um, you know, to be honest, still to this day, most uh, the you know, the, the supposed experts still can't quite figure out exactly what, how you figure out, how you predict who's going to be more susceptible to it, but, you know. Well, we have never been low on supplies of anything. We've always, you know, you're, you're the one who always preaches, one is none, two is one, three is two. We've always done that. And that's one of the things when we watch these um, shows on television, especially Gold Rush, and they don't have a part and they don't have this. I could go on for hours how critical that is. But one of the things that we did is we added to our, our storage locker, if you want to call it. And um, I mean, we had no problem surviving without going for anything, food, medicine, shelter. I mean, we were totally fine. Yeah, yeah, we were prepared. We were prepared for the long, long haul. We're not talking about what, a couple of months. We're talking about a couple of years. We have no problem doing that. But the problem, point is, I just think that we've always been, you and I and everybody in the family, I've raised everybody is that, and I always say the words, variable change. Don't stick your heels in the dirt. You got to sit back and look at things. And, uh, you know, I think this is a really good time to sit back and look at a lot of those things. And I think a lot of people were inevitably going to die because I think a lot of people, if you go to the villages or any of these 55 plus communities, for a lot of those people are my age, they're just... These are people that they get the flu and they're going to die. And it's not, it's they're not in good general health. So. so ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, one and all, I always talk about the importance of being physically fit. I think that is absolutely uh, critical. And um, I think that it is absolutely important that on a daily basis that um, Bingo. you get out and you do your uh, strength, endurance, and flexibility training with natural. Key key is natural nutrition, hydration, and everything in moderation. Bingo. You got to stretch, you got to bend, you got to do your cardio, you got to do a little bit of fast walking, you got to you got to work it. And I think, I think it's been proven that people that were in good shape, the only problem, I'll jump right in here real quickly though, one more thing is I think that a lot of people... 
who were appeared to be in good shape weren't. Uh, you have a phrase called skinny fat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a common phrase in the physical fitness world. You know, you have a lot of the population that, oh yeah, you're you look like you're in good shape, but you know, you're actually just you know low low muscle percentage and uh, you know fairly low body fat percentage, but it just you know look unhealthy. That's uh, but I mean in, in general, I mean you know the, the problem with most people is just a total lack of activity. I mean most people live you know in their bed in their special chair in their couch in their car or at their work desk i mean that's just where most people spend 90 percent of their day you add the toilet and the shower onto it that's pretty much everywhere <laughs> um and they have a chair in a, in a in a shower so they don't have to bend over well then you're over that's that's it that's it. it's all over with there is a medical publication that has been around for a long long time it's called the lancet it's an international weekly general medical journal uh it was founded just under 200 years ago it was founded in 1823 now i gotta tell you this is something i think is absolutely amazing just like the farmer's almanac always makes me smile they predicted that by the year 2100 2100, that the four largest populated countries in the world would be India, Nigeria, China, and the United States. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. I, the only problem with that is that I have a giant question as to we can make these predictions based on birth rates and all the obvious factors, you know, uh, infant mortality and reproduction rates, in, incline or decline. And, you know, you just, just do your, you just do your uh, Excel spreadsheet and figure it out. But I, I see Nigeria and I've heard I've heard this thing talked about for, I don't know, 10 plus years about how Nigeria is going to be, you know, a superpower by X date and all the people and all this stuff. And I think it's possible. But the one, I'm always looking for where's the bottleneck? China ran into a bottleneck because um, basically, let's say, Western liberalism infected the minds of their young people. Uh, They enjoy their uh, glass walled high rises more than they enjoy having children. And, um, you know, you literally have a population of people who parents were dirt farmers and now they their children are making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year living in a glass high-rise um those that's a dramatic shift combined with the one child policy demographic uh there's a giant there's a giant just population bottleneck in china that's going to happen sooner and faster than it is in the u.s china will likely see uh you know depending on how how aggressive it is um they could see a 20 percent population decline which i'm sure the chinese government would actually like because they have an excess population right now that's dangerous but um i look at india or uh, not india um india plausible I, I see india kind of flatlining on population to be honest um countries exceedingly populated and i see as uh as kind of western stuff let's just say you know media consumption um television um stuff like that infects the average person in standard of living increases number of children is probably going to decrease fairly significantly over the next few years i don't know what it's at now um but in any case but the one I look at that's interesting is Nigeria. That one's a, a unique one because the bottleneck I see is obviously all of those things apply. And, and I, as far as I recall, their their birth rate is declining, but they still have like over 200 million people. It's some gargantuan number that most people have no idea. Uh, but the bottleneck I see is I, I, 
had to look this up before we we did this. Nigeria, when they, I can't remember what the year was, like 1990 or something, um, 70% of their GDP was uh, food exports. And Nigeria is interesting because something like 90% of the land in the country is arable. Since then, number the amount of farming in the country has gone down and 50% of their food is imported. That's not sustainable. That's not sustainable at all. Um, and the, to be honest, I mean, the only countries in the world that will be able to sustain a very large population for a very long period of time are going to be those that are food sustainable. Do you grow enough food? And the United States is one of those unique superpowers that has existed in all of history. You can go go do go do a little research on the history of agriculture and stuff and, and empires. But the United States is unique in that we became a global superpower and retained our own uh, food production independence. Do we import some stuff? Of course. You know, we import uh, different crops during different prime seasons when things are in season in South America and different places like that. But we don't import the majority of our food. We grow a surplus and we export it. We grow so much corn that we burn it and put it in our fuel tanks. In fact, it's even regulated and, you, you know, depending on what state you're in, it may they may require you to put 5, 10, 13, I think, percent is the highest I've seen ethanol mix as part of your fuel. And that is just a pure subsidy to farmers. Granted, the long-term strategy on that is you can always stop doing that. Your gas will go up in price, but at least you'll have food on the table. So yeah, which one's more important? So it's little things like that, um, but but it's we're a unique kind of uh, uh, standout in history because obviously Rome, you know, had to import food. Captain Obvious. Um, Great Britain is another one that I know of. Uh, they primarily used uh, Ireland as their bread basket, well, potato basket. Um, as Britain did ne- never grew enough food to sustain the empire after I can't remember what year, but anyways, after they started to get super big, um, they required imports of all kinds of stuff. That's why you know, in order to make rum and beer and all this stuff, they had to import all these things from all over the place because arable land and then the seasons required to grow things, they just didn't have enough. And that was, uh, to kind of finish my little diatribe, I think the only, the thing, uh, that is the primary reason for the British Navy, besides like fighting each other and never-ending wars with France and whatnot. Um, pri- one of the primary reasons for the British Navy was to go out and get bird poop. And most people don't know that because they think, and most people, if you tell them that, they'd think you're nuts. But We're talking about bird poop. Yes. P-O-O-P. Don't say the word shit because we can't say that. So don't say bird shit. Say bird poop. Well, so you go all around the world and you go to abandoned islands. One thing we'll find on every abandoned island, if you can find an abandoned island that exists to this day, um, when I say abandoned, let's say uh, uninhabited, um, they will be covered in bird poop. And the reason for it is because birds use these as stopping off points to basically rest as they migrate all over the place. And some islands more than others will be covered and covered and covered and just literal like feet of bird poop and that's how they got their nitrogen or their early fertilizers and they would literally go to the find these places send the british navy all around the world to find uninhabited islands that are covered in bird excrement and then send ships to go out and go get it and then bring it back so they could use it for farming isn't it amazing they were able to do that before they invented the wheel it's amazing unbelievable so that's one aspect of of people talk about oh you know militarism is bad it's like well if if militarism is required to feed people i don't think anybody really cares and you know but that's one aspect of it that people don't consider is that um why is the british navy shrunk well nobody needs nobody needs to hunt the world for bird poop anymore and it's all pretty much gone too they pretty much exhaust that resource and uh most people don't think it would it's that primitive but it really is it's that primitive i'm thinking of the graduate when um you know how you gonna make money dustin hoffman and all these different things and i never saw anybody say bird poop no very few people talk about weird 
odd elements of history like this, but it does kind of shine a light onto why you had these this British Navy floating all around the four corners of the of the world. Well, that's why. Well, the uh, British Navy is gone, and so is. Kanana Takaka, 119 years of age, the oldest living person on earth, died and she's in Japan. God rest her soul. She's very cool. I don't know if you, uh, did you see about anything about that? No, this is new to me. So she loved to drink soft drinks and eat candy bars. She was just fascinated with uh, these things. And um, apparently she ate not what you would call a super healthy diet. Um, But uh, it it, it kind of, I thought it was great. Well, I mean, you know, the reality with diet is that you can eat whatever you want as long as you fast. If you don't fast, I mean, if simple, simple example, it's kind of obvious, especially for anybody over the age of, I don't know, let's say 40, 45. Think about back in your childhood. Did everybody eat all the time? Did everybody have a soft drink in their hand? Did they, were they always munching on a candy bar every five minutes? Every, every commercial break, did they go up and get food? No. They ate three, three meals a day at most, and that's what they ate, right? Everybody couldn't wait for breakfast or lunch or dinner, and that was it. You had your, you had your dessert during dinner time. You didn't have it at 2.30 in the afternoon because that's what you thought you wanted to do at that moment in time. I'm sure most people of that age remember their mother or father telling them that stop eating, you know, and taking, potentially taking food from you and telling you if you wanted whatever, you should eat more at dinner. Well, the reality is, is they enforced a fasting regimen where you fasted for, you know, what, 12 to 16 hours a day, depending on when you got up and when you went to bed. And uh, in North America, I mean, most people went to bed. I mean, most people ate at like 5 p.m. That was kind of the rule, right? Mm -hmm. Between 5 and 6 p.m. And and so you just kind of self-enforced what, 5, 6 p.m. to 6, 7 a.m. usually. Well, there you go. There's your fast. And uh, yeah, I mean, so you have a 119-year-old what woman? 119. Wait, her unhealthy soft drinks and snacks and stupid stuff like that. But the reality is, is it doesn't have that much of an impact if it's not going straight to your waistline. It's kind of funny. You you, you didn't you did not read the article. Uh, you learned about me telling you it. And what you just said is exactly what she did is uh, she basically did eat one meal and if she could get right. She could get her a sweets. She was a happy camper. And the reality is, as you get older, your appetite gets smaller because your uh, your I don't remember what it's called, but anyways, your burning of calories just becomes less as you get older. So your your metabolism slows down. Bingo. So one of the things that uh, I brought that up is because you know you need to realize that uh, the United States is home to nearly one hundred thousand people who are over the age of one hundred, and it's been increasing pretty substantially in pure absolute numbers. Now, Japan has the highest number of centurions. I can't get it out. Did I get it out right? I think I did. Anyway, it's over 100. Six-tenths of the percent is age 100 and over. So they have the oldest, but there are a lot of old uh, villagers in China. And and I say that is because here's the thing. Um, if these guys are healthy, we've got clients that are 100, and we've had several over the years. Um, it's a drag on the economy if they're unhealthy, not so much a drag if they're healthy. And in this case, this woman, like she got, I think they said uh, breast cancer when she was over 100 and she beat it, a couple of different things. I, I just think it's amazing that, you well, know, again, it's just, you got to look at the demographics and where is the world headed? Well, Japan benefits from the uh, Spider-Man effect. You know, they they had uh, two nuclear weapons explode on their territory and they got a lot of Spider-Mans running around. So that's right. Yeah. That's right. So all the people, <laughs> all the, all the, see the, all the Neville Chamberlains out there who are, you know, concerned about uh, Russia and Putin and uh, him pushing the button and causing uh, mutual assured destruction worldwide. Um, I don't know. 
It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Of course, I'll eat, my, I'll eat my words if it does happen, but I'll still laugh. About 3.4 million Americans, however, have eaten their hat and dropped out of the labor force. They've uh, taken on new identities. They're gonzo. Um, everybody's talking about it, excuse me, but I just don't see it as a big deal. One of the things I will let you folks listening know is that I've been traveling a lot lately and um, getting back out and doing things. I kind of like put a pause on for a little while. One of the things I have done is I have done a massive amount of research on vans, sprinters, uh, the big box vans, and the idea of potentially building a van so that uh, I could work on the way where I'm going places. You can't fly everywhere. So the thing is, I don't know, um, I've just constantly seen these vans. Now, I realize not everybody's living on cheese down by the river like uh, Chris Farley did on uh, Saturday Night Live, but I see a lot of vans. I'll tell you where, even where I've seen them. I've seen them in the uh, parking lots all around Tampa. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's funny because you see people talk about this a lot and you see that there are less people in the workforce and you can see that the unemployment rates are just generally low because, I don't know, to be honest, I mean, the quality of work being done and the enthusiasm for people to actually do stuff is quite bad. But at the same time, you also kind of don't really care because the only reason anybody seems to be crying about this is because wages are going up, to be honest. If uh, if there was a huge unemployed mass of the workforce that the government was having to take care of, big businesses would be way happy and nobody would be talking about it. It's, uh, it's always funny how that how that works. It just goes back and forth. We need With inflation, with all this stuff, I mean, the reality is we need wage growth. There has to be wage growth. And you can see at the wages that most companies are paying right now, just the quality of work being done is just pathetic, to be honest. Well, I literally how many years have you heard me preach ever since you were born that uh, uh, one income households we we basically have two very large income house uh, two income household but what did we do we were always there weren't we yeah absolutely I mean you guys were with us we I mean we were not absent ever absentee parents in any way shape or form no not at all so but a lot of people you can't do that and I you know the nanny the the daycares raising the kids and all that kind of stuff I just think that's just I I have no problem if our country started going back to what it was like when I grew up in the 50s and 60s and you know mom was there and she ran the household and she did the networking for dad and you know I mean they they worked as a team but uh, she didn't have any earned income after 1946 <laughs> I think or 45 let's see my sister was yeah she didn't have any earned income after 1945 and uh, they sure did pretty damn well didn't they well, and that's the reality of the of the dual income household is that it didn't double at the time it doubled the income of a household, so it was advantageous. Oh, we can easily afford childcare, blah blah blah. But since 1970, we have seen zero wage growth when you adjust it for inflation. So the problem there is that that the two income household has been taken advantage of by employers to stagnate wages and basically freeze the uh, cost of living or not the uh, freeze freeze the kind of effective uh, income of the average person. Now, the problem is, is in general, the United States has had a you know, pretty large percentage of, uh, of income is disposable income for a household for, you know, since since that era, since the 50s, late 40s, early 50s, when wages exploded. But downside of that is uh, with inflation creeping up and creeping up, that gets sucked away year by year with inflation to the point where 
you know, you can see it in the numbers, you can see it in the debt, you can see it in all this stuff. Like it's starting to affect normal normal people pretty hard. And there absolutely has to be wage growth, even if your big companies uh, don't have the big giant profit numbers that they want to have. And the reason I say this is because, you know, the reality is, is at a certain point, the population will get restless and you'll get, you know, reunionization and things like this that are going to be an even bigger hassle for companies that are uh, out there trying to make a profit. You know, years ago, going back uh, nearly 40 years ago, I talked to people and I get uh, husband and wife and they have kids and, and I hated doing this because it's just to me, it was just like pounding your head against a wall and, you know, they want, you know, financial counseling, help me, how do I do this? And and uh, you'd work a budget with them and I would say to the lady, more often than not, the man oftentimes made more money. That's not always the case. I get that. But it was like, you do realize your working costs you more money than you're making. I would do that over and over and over and not one of them ever quit. I don't ever remember anybody ever quit. And they would get upset and they would say, oh, we have to have our money for our debt, our bills and everything else. But if you looked at what they were spending on childcare, the cost of clothing, I would go through every single thing. Instead of just being surface, I'd go really deep dive into it. There were a lot of people that are making a dollar, 50 cent, $2 an hour. That's all they were making. I used to say, my God, uh, why don't you open a home daycare? You'll make way more money doing that and, and stop going out and eat and stop drinking so much and stop smoking. And you really need to have the Disney, you know, 24, eight pack, you know, so. Yeah, it's true. I mean, people don't realize the cost of working in a two, two person household because when you have children, if you don't have children, then it's pure profit. And I hope everybody, not that anybody's doing this, we know it, but if you have a two person household and you're not saving one person's income, you're nuts. Yeah. You know, and, and that's another thing, you know, how many people in the past, well, at least I did, you know, when I first uh, got my first apartment, I got it with another guy. You know, we weren't gay. <laughs> we had a girlfriend's, we split the cost. And for a while, my girlfriend moved in and his girlfriend moved in and, you know, well, rent went down. It was great. I was paying a quarter of what I anticipated paying, but that was the deal. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Do people do that stuff anymore? Absolutely, they do. But the problem is the cost of housing is so high that you have, you know, two and three bedroom apartments, depending on what city you're living in, can cost as much as three and four thousand dollars a month. So, you know, divide that by four, it's still pretty dang expensive. But Biden's going to take care of it by giving us a, a big drop in gas prices. I don't know if you saw it that uh, and he signed that executive order and they took 144,000 acres out of production when it came to oil and gas. But uh, then he decided to put in another 225 square mile. Anyways, he's back and forth and back and forth as if as if taking land out of oil drilling and taking no more. No We're more. talking about federal yeah. mineral leasing. Yeah. Oil drilling. Yeah. He got an office, so you know. We, so what's the out? What are we doing now? So um, oil is just like a gasoline pump, right? You can just turn it on, turn it off, turn it on, turn it off. There's no lag time, is there? There's never a lag time. No, but if the oil wells are drilled and whatever, they can get them back online within a few months. What, what's the outcome? Do they turn them back on or are they? They're starting to turn them back on. The point I was trying to make is, uh, and I did it badly, is that um, everything's going up in price and housing's yeah. up in price. Absolutely. And so to help uh, in a lot of a lot of places across the country, I thought you knew this, everywhere from Chicago to Baltimore and now even in uh, New York, they're saying, hey, we want to do gas holidays because gas prices are so high and so we'll stop charging the taxes on it. And so that'll help everybody because again, they can't do that with housing unless they have rent control. And of course, when you have rent control, that has a whole nother set of problems. And going back to a bird poop, if everything continues to go as it's been going in New York City, New York City might be the next bird poop area for the world because people are leaving there. Everything that the government tries to run and control, in my opinion, gets totally screwed up. Yeah, well, if they're restarting leases and all that stuff, that's 
a positive because if you reduce the supply, we all know what happens. But more importantly, it's the kind of supply. If I recall my research from a few months ago, um, these leases are largely up north, particularly in Alaska, and that's the quality of oil that is necessary to mix the super sweet stuff from that are always flowing from wells in places like Texas and that can run through our refineries because we do not have the ability to refine pure super sweet oil from Texas and in the Midwest, fortunately. Yeah, and that's a whole nother thing. Several years ago, I did a podcast. We were doing Connecting Dots and I was talking about refineries. It's like I've talked about hydrogen. I've talked about nuclear energy. For those of you who haven't heard it, you, know, you can go back and listen to some of those old ones if you can dig them up. Uh, one of these days, we'll do a, a whole show on that. But look, here's the bottom line. You think it's hard to build a nuclear reactor? Well, it's easier to build a refinery, but not that much. It is unbelievably hard to do. It's hard. It's harder to build a modern refinery, in my opinion. It takes a decade to do it. It's got all kinds of uh, environmental stuff that is probably larger and more complicated than a nuclear reactor now. And they definitely cost more. Uh, a, a big, complicated nuclear reactor now may cost one to two billion dollars. If you have all of your ducks in a row, every refinery will cost like 10 to 15. You know, one of the things I, I'll do um, in just a second here, and, and why don't you just babble for just a minute, nuclear reactors, they are only land-based, right? They're just a handful of them in the world and they're all dangerous like Chernobyl. Uh, some of them are. Uh, the problem, I, in my view, is that the majority of the nuclear reactors in operation today, and there's a lot, and they're all over the place. Most of the nu- most of the electricity in Ukraine, for example, comes from nuclear power, um, despite Chernobyl. Uh, France, I think it's 70%. Germany used to be a high percentage, but they've gone mad, and they've decided to turn them off because Fukushima scared them. Um, in the United States, we still have lots of them. But the general issue is that most of these nuclear reactors are just old, and, you know, they were designed in a much more primitive generation of nuclear technology where they should have had, um, you know, effectively government-forced reinvestment pools created for them. So, you know, if they're for a nuclear power company or or whatever, they should have been, they should have had money forced to be set aside for not just disposal of them when the nuclear materials become non-viable, but also uh, redevelopment of the facility to make it more modern. Um, A lot of these projects were done with a lack of foresight to the basic realities that yeah I mean nuclear is isn't just going to spew out isn't going to spew out some carbon like uh, like gas or, or or oil is going to you know there needs to be a, a you know an afterlife plan for the plant and they also didn't consider the reality that these things the, the technology is going to evolve significantly so you have a lot of plants that are just to be honest quite dated and while some of them were designed quite well others not so much and Fukushima and, and um, um, and uh, Chernobyl, I guess, are two big examples of what kind of a mess they can be. Fukushima got out of it pretty easily. Uh, didn't have the impact or the disaster that everybody thought it would. It was a lot of chicken little, um, and that's being dealt with. Um, Chernobyl is just a classic case of uh, Soviet and or uh, Russian incompetence that never seems to disappear. It never stops. It's always, God, these it's Russians, a, I con- swear. It's a constant case of uh, good intentions, but everybody wants to pass 
pass the buck and, and get rid of responsibility. Bingo. Yeah, the Russians are a complete joke. Just for the record, uh, there are over 200 small reactors basically on uh, ships all around the world right now. And that number is probably low. And there's at least 450 nuclear reactors on uh, land. About 10% of the power of uh, the Western world, 4% worldwide comes from nuclear reactors. And uh, I don't care what you say. This is, uh, this is the, in my opinion, the, one of the cleanest ways of doing energy. We just go, however, you have planned obsolescence. You have to have maintenance. You have to have disposal of, uh, of, of waste. No different than anything else. In a little more serious, but uh, take serious people like us to do serious things like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a technology that fulfills all of the green and uh, environmental people's uh, wishes. The, diff- the problem is, is it has to have a comprehensive, well-planned, and well-followed program for its life cycle. It has, it has to have proper life cycle management. And, you know, in the West, we're pretty good at those sorts of things. It's disappointing that these older reactors did not get the treatment. You've had all of this uh, anti-nuclear sentiments, uh, in my opinion, seeded by the big oil companies, companies like, or uh, uh, organizations like Sierra Club and others like that have literally been funded by the big oil companies for decades, contrary to most people's uh, thinking. And if it's if it's not direct, obviously it's, it's indirect. I think it mostly is. But these people have been weaponized against the thing that would actually replace the majority of their use. And, you know, in their minds, it's just business. But out here, it's kind of got some dangerous consequences, in my view. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes you just want to uh, scream. Hey, I'm going to uh, drop down to number 14 and 13. We're going to use a little bit of a checklist today, and then we're going to wrap it up and get out of here. For those of you who don't know it, Paul and I do not normally craft any kind of a thing. We just start talking, but we do put a little checklist together. So this here says that the three busiest airports in the world, that is kind of cool. Obviously, this shows you the pandemic. In 2021, for air passenger air traffic, Atlanta, which is always, you know, my God. Super hot. Yeah, super hub. Then you got Dallas, Fort Worth, and Denver. So we got one, two, three. Both super hubs. They are. Yeah, makes sense. Well, in China has just killed, has has effectively killed themselves with what their next steps in their pandemic reduction process, whatever the heck they're doing over there. Um, I mean, China seems to be afraid of the. They they seem to be as afraid of the pandemic as they are of their ghosts. They are, and the number of ships I've seen off the coast of China, the total lack of air flights, like nobody can do anything thing you can't get in there can't get out it is it is insane so I, I it's interesting because didn't china didn't one of the big chinese airports always used to be in the top three like shanghai or something like that one, of, always, the, one yeah. of those airports is huge, huge. yeah uh, you know this is a good time to start a war with them <laughs> Well, Could, it's just it's just self-inflicted harm at this point, and I don't get it. Like we've proven to the world, even though some people thought we were being crazy and suicidal and blah blah blah, we've proven to the world that yeah, I mean, COVID is can be dangerous to some people, but the reality is, is the economy has to move on. Like we have to produce things, people have to work, people have rent to pay, people have electric bills to pay. The government can't compensate for this forever. Well, you it's know, like nuts. yeah, I mean, you know, like back in the days when uh, you know they used to carry the wagons out west. I don't know if you knew that. The, when they used to go west, they they used to lead the cows, and then you had a couple of guys on one side of the wagon, a couple of guys, in the other, and they carried the wagon. Mm, yeah. yeah, and then and then somebody said, you know, look at the I don't know if you, a guy by the name of Zoo Zoo fell down and he fell and he went loopy loopy. And somebody said, you know what, we could cr- that looks interesting. And they called it a wheel. Yeah, let's let's replicate him rolling. They yeah. did that, and, that, and that's true. I, I was listening to uh, that congresswoman in New York, AOC, and according to her, um, wagon wheels were invented 
invented in the 1800s because Zoo fell down and, and broke, broke his crown. And then uh, Lulu came following after, and that's how they created the wheel. So thank God for small little accidents that cause people to, you know, go boom, boom and fall, fall down. It just, you know, I'm telling you, I swear to God, you know, if somebody caught just that clip, they're going to they're gonna believe it. Well, the reality is behind the wheel, if anybody doesn't know, um, the f- evidence, first evidence for the wheel, granted most wheels probably being wooden and probably not surviving the test of time. It's kind of an obvious invention if you th- need to move stuff around and you are doing lots of manual labor. But the first evidence for a wheel uh, that, we, that we have on the planet is 3400 BC from northern Germany. So 3400 BC. So that's longer than 34 years ago. Yeah, it's 5400 years ago, give or take. But I thought in the I thought in the Bible that man was created only about 3000 years ago. Don't go there. That's likely to piss more people off than you can imagine. <laughs> Uh, I do Bingo. have a tendency of doing that. Let's wrap one thing up. My dad used to always say, you know, son, you never own your own property. As long as there's property taxes, you will never own your own property. This is true. And we have property in Texas where we don't have property taxes. This is true. We own our property. We have a ranch. So this applies to most people. The average property tax rate on a single family home in the United States as of 2021, this is just average now, is $3,719, which equates to just under 1% of the fair market value of the home. This according to the National Association of Realtors. I, I, I got to tell you, I got to tell you. Yeah. I mean, you pay, uh, you pay taxes every time you go to the, you pay taxes when you spend money, you pay taxes when you receive money, you pay taxes when you own something, you pay taxes when you sell something, you know, it's just, it is. You pay it taxes is. when you use something and, and you pay taxes when you die. Uh, it, it's, it, of course, you know, the estate tax is set to expire for uh, the lucky few who actually get to expire and and uh and uh be released from this earth with with something left that is uh i guess a benefit to some people but yeah yeah it's a here's the thing people complain about taxes and they are what they are i mean what is something at least at least uh before the pandemic uh price increases on gas and everything uh you know i think the average was taxes were something like half of gas price so you know gas prices could be 50 percent less if or at least right now probably like 30 something percent less if they wanted to just reduce the taxes that would be awesome but the reality is is you know americans don't have a problem paying taxes except for a small whiny minority if they have a big giant military and they feel good about themselves they start complaining this is just a personal observation when do when do americans in particular start complaining about taxes things aren't good yeah and things could get a little rough coming up here a little in a little while maybe we'll see but you know what i do know bingo this is that time in the world's history when we're getting ready to replicate what we did in World War One, World War Two. Ukrainians are fighting the Russians and everybody's muscling up. We're kind of sitting back and, you know, in World War Two, we were like the first ones to get in, weren't we? I mean, we're the ones that caused it. No, no. But it is funny that, uh, as far as I can tell now, all the news reports and the tea tree or the tea leaf reading and all that sort of stuff, uh, it looks like there's American, British, and French special forces on the ground in Ukraine and it looks like they've probably been there for a while. So, once again, it's a good case of Russia, all talk, no action. Everybody can cry about nuclear weapons and all this stuff, and they can make threats, but they're just not serious. Like they're just giant bullies who are afraid to actually use their their power move if they have if they actually have it. And uh, you know, the reality is is the future of Russia is extremely bleak. And you know, I think uh, in Congress or Senate, one of the two, I don't remember where the bill's at. There's a, a lend lease bill uh, 
the Defense Department has appointed a retired general to head a basically the supply program that will send stuff. I know Blinken, it's the Secretary of State of the United States, for those unaware, and uh, the head of DOD. Um, Fiddlesticks lost, lost his it. name. Yeah. Anyways, um, they both were in Kiev uh, earlier today, I think, or yesterday. I think earlier today. And uh, yeah, so, you know, and then of course the Russians then, you know, got mad after they left the country. They then bombed a bunch of train stations. You're talking about the Secretary of Defense? Yes. Yeah, that would be that guy Lloyd Austin the yeah, third. Lloyd Austin. And uh, yeah, so they were in Kiev. They met with Zelensky, blah, blah, blah. Uh, State Department said that we're sending our diplomats back to Ukraine because basically uh, they're no longer in harm's way and that um, their presence is necessary for relations with Ukraine going forward. And, uh, you know, the reality is, is with all the sanctions and everything, Russia is a toast country. I mean, they, they will end this two ways. They will totally self-implode. Um, well, three ways, let's say. It will totally self-implode, meaning leadership fights, civil war, coups, that sort of thing. There is no continuity of government succession there, and they're going to be. It's, it's going to be a, interesting. It's, a, it's always Russia's always been a question mark with continuity of government. It always has been. Um, it's you know they claim to be like the the logical uh, successor to the Roman Empire, but you know Rome can have how many emperors or uh, or consuls assassinated? These guys get one, and it's like total civilizational turmoil. Um, yeah, so you know the, the you've got yeah you've got a total implosion. They can kill themselves by being too stupid, meaning they can try and lash out in a nuclear wave, and then the whole world is going to annihilate them, or they're going to become somebody else's vassal. I don't, I honestly don't see any other way out of it. And I think the most likely outcome is that uh, they basically implode and they become like, for lack of a better word, Russia be- becomes balkanized. It may not be immediate; it may take 20, 25 years. But I can see potentially as many as a dozen little micro states pop up. Of course, <laughs> they're not mi- they're micro states for the for Russia. But I laugh because Russia is such a massive country; it could be balkanized into a dozen or more countries the size of France. It could be, you know. Anyways, I I just I have a very dim view on the future of Russia, primarily due to the lack of action by their citizenry. And if 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 these truly are brother states with a shared culture, which they do, I mean, they have an immensely uh, uh, intertwined culture with Ukraine, and they have a leader who is, you know, he's a legitimate dictator. He's an absolute lunatic who probably has Parkinson's and or thyroid cancer, based on everything I've seen. Um, We're talking about Putin, by the way. Yes, Vladimir Putin. And uh, I would say the the battle of the Vladimir's will 100% be lost by the old man. Um, you know, Ukraine is a budding new country that, you know, as a, a, a commentary that we saw earlier the, last week, I guess, you know, this is the founding myth for Ukraine as a country. Their splitting from the Soviet Union was fairly peaceful and mostly bloodless and kind of just a happenstance of circumstances. And, um, you know, this is their beginning. This is their revolutionary war. This is yep. their, this is their breaking away from the empire. This, I was just going to say, you know, from a forecasting standpoint, I really think without giving attribution to percentages, but I would say in my lifetime, in my lifetime in the next, oh, I, I plan on being around another 40, 50 years. But the bottom line, I think in my lifetime, we will see Ukraine become a world superpower. And the reason I say that is that they have arable land, they have a topography, they have natural resources, not just uh, in terms of uh, you know, your land and all that, but they have intellectual resources. And I hope a lot of these people who fled will come back into the country because uh, this is not a dumb nation. No, I mean, Ukraine, for all of the complaints by people who have, you know, and I believed it too, you know, 
know, lots of complaints of corruption. And, you know, there, there's no question they definitely have problems and had problems. But I think a lot of people fail to see the impact of having to deal with Russia as a primary bully in your neighborhood. Impact that has had on their economy and their ability to grow and trade and do different things. You know, the future of Ukraine is bright. I, they have a people that have a sense of identity. They are smart. Um, you know, they have a lot of highly sophisticated industries that a country of their size, not really meaning population, but meaning um, mainly mainly monetary GDP and exports and all that sort of stuff. A country of their size, they they've they've done a lot of they've done a lot of very powerful things over throughout history. Uh, a good example is you look at you look at um, the early Soviet era. You you look at start going through old Soviet military equipment and look at how much of it was designed and built in Ukraine. They're, most of their ships, airplanes, tanks, all of this stuff, people fail to realize how important Ukraine was to the Soviet Union as a whole in their military power and, and all that sort of stuff. To the point that I was reading about this a couple weeks ago, that even to the day before the war, the Russians were hiring Ukrainian nuclear scientists to repair and uh, maintenance their giant nuclear arsenal. But they're a supposed enemy state and they hate each other and they're crazy Nazis who are out of their minds. You know, what One of the battlefield uh, propaganda things was that Ukrainians are using super soldier battle meth or something. And there's this all, If any of that was true, there's no way they would hire their nuclear scientists to, re, to maintenance their nuclear arsenal. That's like That makes no sense. I think we've given everybody enough to talk about for the next couple of days. We're going to be back on Friday and I would encourage you to see what we did today. We linked episode 278, which is what we have today, with episode 277, Hamilton stole what? Steve wasn't perfect, but Putin is a criminal. And that kind of ties up with what we were saying. There are some things in life you just got to do because of the circumstances. So all of these meme-based surface things about Ukraine and all that, it's kind of sad. Well, let's get out here. You ready to rock and roll? Yeah, let's do it. I'm Paul Truesdell, and who are you? And I'm Paul Truesdell. And it is Tuesday, April 26th, and we're out of here. See you on Friday. The Paul Truesdell Podcast is sponsored in part by Fixed Cost Financial, a registered investment advisor. Fixed Cost Financial, where investing is done right. Visit FixedCostFinancial.com. That's FixedCostFinancial.com. The Paul Truesdell Podcast is also sponsored in part by Lie Die Today. Intelligently protecting your most precious assets. Visit LieDie.today. That's LieDie.today. You'll be glad you did. The Paul Truesdell Podcast is also sponsored in part by the estate planning, elder law, and asset protection planning law firm of attorney Kelly and Truesdell. Visit Truesdell.net. That's Truesdell.net for more information. The Paul Truesdell Podcast website is paultruesdell.com. That's paultruesdell.com.